Hey, folks. Pattern is a disability insurance company, and they know that you want to be confident and in control of your finances. In order to do that, you need to buy disability insurance. Pattern understands the problem is that researching insurance is complicated and time-consuming, which can make you feel overwhelmed and unsure of who to trust. Pattern knows that your time is valuable, and they believe that doctors have more important things to do than worry about insurance. That's why thousands of doctors have trusted Pattern to help them understand the insurance they're buying. Here's how they do it. You go in, you request your quotes, you compare your options, and you buy risk-free. So request your quotes today at PatternLife.com. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-N-L-I-F-E.com. So you can stop wasting time and feeling overwhelmed and instead save money and spend time on the things you love, being confident your family and income are protected. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm thrilled to have back with me today Dr. David Mintz, who, as listeners will remember, is one of our neuroanesthesiologists. He's an associate professor of anesthesiology, and he is the division chief of neuroanesthesiology here at Johns Hopkins. And today, we are going to talk about anesthesia for elective intracranial aneurysm clipping. Dr. Mintz, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. So just to place this in context, we're going to focus just on anesthetic management and goals of care for patients having elective aneurysms, so unruptured aneurysms. Great. And in the future, hopefully you'll consent to come back and we can talk about what one does for uh, a ruptured aneurysm producing a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Um, Lots of interesting stuff there as well. But let's start today, as you said, with just elective unruptured aneurysm clipping. What are your preoperative concerns when you know you're going to be going to the OR with one of these patients? So preoperative considerations are largely not all that different from any other craniotomy. Um, One special feature that you should look into um, are prodromal symptoms. So you'll see a set of patients who came to attention because they have headaches that have been worsening recently. And uh, particularly if those are new headaches or atypical headaches for those patients, that can actually be a sign of an impending rupture, and that may change your thinking about the case somewhat. You should talk with your surgeon. They'll have a very good idea of that. Um, As with any neurosurgical case, you should be carefully assessing and documenting the preoperative neurologic status because if they have a preoperative deficit, it's probably going to be their postoperative and you don't want it to be on your tab, as it were. Um, Beyond that, uh, again, as with any patient, it's of great importance to establish if they have cardiovascular disease um, as that could radically change your plan. And if the patient has difficult airway, that, of course, could radically change the standard plan and patients who have any, you know, substantial burden of respiratory disease as well. Um, but beyond that, fairly typical. Um, I do want to make a note about pre-medications. Mm-hmm. Um, institutional practices vary widely as far as what's considered normal, but there's a fairly strong consensus that most of these patients should not receive benzodiazepines before surgery. Um, they are probably the worst offenders in terms of hampering the emergence, um, which is a really critical feature of this case, as with any craniotomy. If the patient is really nervous, hand-holding is always better than benzos. Um, If you have a patient who is benzo-dependent and didn't take their benzos in the morning, that might be one of the few exceptions. Beyond that, these folks should probably get Tylenol, um, and there's really no other medication that's particularly standard beyond those, uh, the ones I already mentioned. Do you have feelings about if someone has a history of uh, severe post-op nausea and vomiting about a scopolamine patch? So you should definitely avoid scopolamine patches in these patients, and I would urge you to avoid scope in all of your craniotomy patients because if your patient should wake up with a pupil that looks different than the other one, uh, everyone will freak out and they may look at you strangely if, in fact, you were contributory to that, and it can really confuse the situation afterwards. So Um, Unfortunately, while scopolamine can be very efficacious for these patients, you're going to have to find other alternatives. Great. Makes a lot of sense to me. All right. So one thing that I had, I remember this from back when I was a resident, I had one attending who um, didn't like benzos for anybody in pre-op. 
But if someone was really nervous, he would sometimes give just like a CC of propofol. Is that something you'd ever recommend for someone who was really anxious going in for a, a craniotomy? It's not something I've ever done, but I'd have to say I'd prefer that you did that than that you gave a benzo. The propofol is a drop in the bucket, and it should wear off. And if if that's normal practice, it's your institution. And if you feel for other reasons that that's safe, I think that's well within reason. Um, you might also consider using opiates. There are a large number of patients who will have their anxieties calmed by a modest dose of fentanyl, which is a medication that you're going to give a lot of and which is completely benign in this setting. Um, and that's that would be what I would go to first personally. All right. That makes sense. So let's talk about your goals of care for the case. What are you keeping in mind as you move forward? So the first and foremost goal related to all aneurysms, as I'm sure everybody listening is aware, is tight blood pressure management. And that's really the biggest challenge in these cases. Um, on the one hand, you never want neurosurgery patients to be hypotensive. The brain is highly dependent on collateral circulation and never more so when there's extensive retraction going on. And there are no easy paths to reach any blood vessel that is going to have an aneurysm on it. There's always going to be brain retraction. And the more you can encourage collateral circulation, the better off the patient is likely to be. It's not like doing a liver resection where you can yank profoundly on the liver with a retractor and the liver doesn't care. It'll be fine the next day. The brain is very different. Um, on the other side of that equation, you have hypertension, which as long as you have an unprotected aneurysm poses a perhaps lethal threat to the patient. Um, a, an unplanned rupture um, prior, to, prior to clipping has very bad outcomes associated with it. It's not a common event. Um, the data suggests that 1% to 2% of aneurysms rupture intraoperatively prior to clipping, and that data includes the set of previously ruptured aneurysms, which are much more likely to do so. Your elective aneurysm patients who are walking around in the world, they do experience blood pressure swings, and their aneurysm is managing to be intact in spite of that. Again, very different from a previously ruptured aneurysm, which may be held together with just a tiny platelet plug and a little fibrin around it. Um, that having been said, if you're cavalier about the blood pressure, um, the consequences for the patient may be devastating. Is there a certain range that you aim for, or is it patient-dependent? So this is one of the terrible quandaries of neuroanesthesia as it's currently practiced, and we hope that technology in the future may, may give us better data to guide with. So the you know, textbook thinking about this is that the blood pressure should not be more than 10 to 20% lower than the baseline blood pressure, whatever that is. Um, and the thinking is that typically it shouldn't go more than 10 to 20% above uh, or else you have a risk of rupture. In practice, that's very hard to implement because we seldom, if ever, really know what a patient's blood baseline blood pressure is unless we have Holter data or something of that nature. Um, there's another school of thinking that sort of picks a, a set of numbers that have some history or anecdote behind them. People will say, well, I don't want my systolics to be above 160 because the risk of rupture is much higher above that number. And there is some data behind that conceptually, but there's nothing magic about the number 160. Um, and the same group of people may say, and I don't want my MAP to be lower than 80. Again, there's nothing magic about that number, but in somebody with a normal autoregulatory curve, a MAP of 80 is more than adequate to assure cerebral perfusion. Okay. And um, I assume these patients need A-lines, right? And you're going to be very tightly watching this blood pressure. Generally speaking, I, I would be hard-pressed to, to think of a circumstance where I'd be willing to do any sort of an anesthetic on a patient with an unprotected aneurysm without having arterial line monitoring. I think the the biggest debate is under what circumstances should you place a pre-induction arterial line. And this is always clinical judgment. Um, I, I think there's a fairly clear consensus that in an already ruptured aneurysm, you would be wise to do so. I think there's a modest consensus that in a patient with prodromal symptoms, so this is someone who may have be on the verge of rupture or having small ruptures, that again, a preoperative arterial line is closer, you could say it was standard perhaps. Okay. Um, there's a lot more debate about patients who have an unruptured aneurysm that doesn't have prodromal symptoms and practice varies widely. You know, certainly if you have a patient who's extremely nervous and they're jumping off the table, you might think about waiting. Um, if you can do it quickly and easily, it might be the 
path of greater safety. Okay. So we talked about blood pressure. Are there other goals you keep in mind as you're heading into these? The other main goal, um, and this holds true for all craniotomies, but especially so for aneurysms, um, is to think about your emergence and to design your anesthetic to maximize your chance of getting as much neurologic function out of the patient on emergence. Um, This is critical for allowing your neurosurgical colleagues to make a rapid assessment about whether their work has, in fact, been successful. It's critical in order to push the patient's care forward if that turns out not to be the case. Um, And it's also critical for your intensive care colleagues as they further assess the patient um, for neurologic changes in the aftermath of the surgery. Whatever you do, you've got to figure out a way to wake up these patients with the best neurologic exam that's possible. And you do a great disservice um, to, to the patient's care after they leave your operating room if you can't do that. And so what, what choices do you make to maximize that possibility? So there are so many different ways to skin the cat. But, you know, I think the, the, most, the most useful approach to it are short-acting medications, um, judicious dosing of medications. These patients don't require a Mac, a Mac and a half of anesthetics. Um, I think an avoidance of Tiva is probably indicated for nearly all these surgeries. I'm not saying you can't do an aneurysm clipping successfully with Tiva, but the data do suggest that Tiva is associated with more prolonged emergence. Um, and unfortunately with Tiva, you don't have a very good way to control how much or to assess how much anesthetic you need and control your anesthetic to give the minimum amount necessary. Um, Other things that you can think about, adequate blood pressure management. Patients who are hypotensive uh, tend to emerge much more slowly. Um, And then beyond all those things, just timing your case correctly, Um, realizing that you need to start the process of emergence pretty early. It can be kind of scary. Your patient is in pins. They're paralyzed. You're thinking to yourself, gosh, you know, I don't want to have awareness. Um, But the reality with most of these patients is that uh, intraoperative awareness is a very unlikely event given the amount of brain manipulation that goes on. Yep. Okay. So important things to keep in mind. When you think about the induction and airway management, what are you keeping in mind and how do you approach that? So induction and airway management is critical because going back to our tight blood pressure control Um, We have, unfortunately, the two possible evils represented in that situation. So post-induction hypotension is the commonest thing in the world, right? We see it all the time. Um, On the other hand, hypertension associated with direct laryngoscopy or really any airway management, we see that all the time too, right? And navigating a path such that you avoid hypotension or hypertension during that time period is critical. And of note, Avoiding hypertension during laryngoscopy and intubation, um, that is the time where you have probably the the highest risk of rupture uh, at any point during the case, the highest risk of rupture due to your management. And so are we doing, do you, for example, if you compare a Whipple to a intracranial aneurysm clipping, are you going to use different medications for induction? Um, Not necessarily different medications, although I might have a different armamentarium of medications. I'll start just by giving my approach to it. I'm not at all saying that this is the only way to go. There are many, many different approaches, but I think thematically they're all consistent. So the average otherwise healthy patient, um, I would premedicate with lidocaine. Um, I would premedicate with fentanyl. Um, My dose for fentanyl at that time tends to be about half to two-thirds of my standard dose for beginning a case, which is five mics per kilo. Um, Beyond that, um, I will give propofol to actually induce general anesthesia. I tend to be more generous with the propofol dose than I am um, in some settings. But remember, you don't have to induce anesthesia all of a sudden, right? There's, there's There's no urgent need for the patient to fall unconscious immediately. So I tend to do titrated propofol to get the patient to the point of unconsciousness rather than just picking a dose arbitrarily. Um, Beyond that, I start each of these cases with a syringe of esmolol and a syringe of dilutinic hardipine. Um, I like the esmolol because you have a pure beta blocker effect. I like the nicardipine because you have a pure vasodilator effect. Mm -hmm. And I can respond to what I see the patient doing with a very fast onset medication 
um, that lasts a relatively short time, so I don't pay for my mistakes quite as much, um, and I can respond. If I see the patient's heart rate going up, I can give the Esmolol, and hopefully that can prevent that. If the patient is becoming hypertensive without a change in heart rate, I can go ahead and give nicardipine. And so when you say dilute nicardipine, what is your dilution? So typically, um, I'll dilute the nicardipine so that you have anywhere between 100 and 250 micrograms per cc. And depending on what concentrations you have available to you in a bag or a vial, I'd say that's the way to go. 100 micrograms of nicardipine given as a bolus dose is a pretty modest dose, and you'd expect to see an effect within uh, half a minute to a minute and a half, but it would be a modest effect. 500 micrograms of nicardipine, that's a very profound dose, and you should see a drop in MAP of at least 10 or 15, if not more, pretty quickly. Okay. Yeah. And Esmolol, are you pushing 10 to 20 milligrams at a time? It's very patient-dependent. Folks who are on beta blockers chronically, as you know, of course, require much larger doses. Um, and so in the beta blocker naive population, 20 to 30 um, milligrams is usually a reasonable dose. Mm -hmm. um, so once we push those medications, the, once we push the propofol, um, I'll go ahead and take a look at the patient's vitals. If their heart rate is anywhere over you know, 50, I'll go ahead and give some esmolol usually 20 or 30 milligrams. Um, at that point, typically, they're not hypertensive, but I'm keeping in mind what's going to go on. The next thing I do um, is I do what's called test laryngoscopy, which is where you put your laryngoscope in um, with the intent of achieving a view. By the way, I skipped a step there. Of course, you have to paralyze the patient. Um, I favor succinylcholine for these patients, and the reason for that is I don't want to have a lag of time between my induction and when I actually began laryngoscopy. Mm. Um, during that lag of time, then I have to start to rethink about inducing further anesthesia, turning on gas anesthetic. It just kind of complicates the management. I like to take advantage of the depth of the propofol that I've already achieved and go ahead and do my laryngoscopy while that's still firmly on board. So paralyzed with sex, go ahead and do a laryngoscopy, and then get your view and take your laryngoscope out. Um, when you do that, then your focus returns to the patient's hemodynamic state. Um, and if I see a rise in heart rate, I'm apt to treat it with the esmolol. If I see a rise in blood pressure with no concomitant change, uh, I'll treat it with, uh, with nicardipine. If I see both happening, um, or if I see a very profound rise in blood pressure, I may go ahead and get both. Give the medications a minute or two to circulate, go back in and do the laryngoscopy and put the tube in, and as soon as the tube goes in and I've verified that CO2 is positive, again, my attention is right back to the blood pressure. Mm -hmm. It's much easier to do this with help. Inducing an aneurysm solo, absolutely doable. People do it all the time. Um, but if you do that, I'd recommend asking your circulating nursing staff to help you out and be very explicit with them. Hey, can you watch the blood pressure and call it out for me as it changes? Um, Hey, can you you know push one cc of this medication that I have lined up for you? That kind of thing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I want to take a little detour and talk about the management. This was management for a patient with a straightforward airway. Okay. And that's it was nice, but as we know, it doesn't always work out that way. So one very commonly asked board question, and frankly one that most of us have encountered in real life from time to time, is the aneurysm patient unruptured aneurysm patient who has some history of difficult airway or some stigmata of difficult airway. Um, the classical approach to this was to do fiber optic intubation. Awake if the patient had stigmata of difficult ventilation or asleep if the practitioner was confident that they could mask ventilate. Um, I think that's a very appropriate approach. In more recent times, um, the advent of uh, video laryngoscopy has probably changed most of our practice so that we don't do that all that frequently. Video laryngoscopy is a great approach to these patients. Um, I would urge you, if you have any questions or concerns about the airway, most of the time I'd say, hey, you should try laryngoscopy first. You know, improve your skills. You don't learn anything from the easy ones. These are probably not the patients to improve your laryngoscopy skills. If you're not pretty confident that you can get it done with laryngoscopy, you should go ahead and use a video laryngoscope from the start um, or perhaps a fiber optic scope. Um, one last note about the, the difficult airway with the fiber optic scope. There's no laryngoscopy, but there is lots of stimulation, and it comes all of a sudden. So there's very little stimulation from passing your scope, 
but passing a tube through vocal cords is very stimulating. So be mindful of that if you're doing uh, any sort of intubation. But obviously, with the, the fiber optic approach, since you're your change in blood pressure is going to happen all of a sudden, and you have to be prepared for it and have premedicated for it. Great. So you would kind of get your get your view, maybe even put your scope through the cords, but before you put that tube through the cords, think about maybe giving some nicardipine, some esmolol, having someone watching the pressure in the heart rate really closely. Absolutely. So just to broaden the discussion, other agents that people use. Um, some people favor very heavy use of uh of fentanyl. Um, that's a great option to just blunt those sympathetics. And if you do that, um, typically your induction and your, um, your intubation and your passing of the tube will be, will be very smooth. There you have to watch for hypotension and treat it judiciously. You're not giving big doses of phenylephrine, you're giving modest doses. Um, other folks argue that labetalol might be the best approach as a combined alpha and beta blocker, with albeit modest beta activity. That works too. And they'll say, well, I want to give the labetalol, and then I don't have to worry about it for a while. There again, then you need to be mindful of hypotension, particularly yep. after the process is done. Um, other folks will do an infusion of remifentanil. That's a lot of work to my mind because you have to set it up and wait for it to go on and so forth. But, you know, it's it's not unreasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, some folks will do an infusion of sufentanil with the same thoughts. Um, there is many different ways of approaching this as there are uh, anesthesiologists probably. Yeah. Okay. So the key are the goals and there are multiple ways to get there. Precisely. So when we think about... Um, other medications you're going to use during the case, I mean, of course, you're going to use the same medications that you use in other cases. You have to keep the patient asleep. You have to uh, make sure their blood pressure is stable. You have to um, make sure that they stay relaxed. Um, if you are going to keep them relaxed, which I assume for this case, it's very important to do. What are some uh, other medications, specific special medications for these kind of cases that you think about? So as with most of the uh, intracranial cases that you do, um, there's a likelihood that you're going to do brain relaxation. Um, There are some exceptional circumstances in which that might not be necessary, but it's pretty much a baseline assumption. Um, For all the brain relaxation medications, remember, this is a conversation with your surgical colleagues. Um, And it's not just a conversation at the beginning of the case, although it's very critical that that conversation happens and that there's a consensus of all parties. It's also a conversation ongoing as they open the dura and as they start to encounter the brain. That's when you need to check in and say, hey, how's it looking in there? But um, as a general rule, almost all of these patients get Decadron. The standard dose at most centers is 10 milligrams. Um, on average, most of these patients will be given mannitol uh, for brain relaxation. Remember, when a surgeon asks you for mannitol, you need to think yourself, are there any contraindications to mannitol? Um, and not just give it blindly, but assuming they're not. And what would those be? Um, the most common ones are patients who don't have working kidneys, in which case mannitol is a, not a good choice, or, or patients who have profoundly low ejection fractions, in which case the sudden uh, influx of fluid into the right heart may be may make you unhappy. It makes sense. Um, so mannitol is pretty standard. There are some centers that prefer uh, 2% or 3% saline. Instead of mannitol, there's a whole academic debate about what the benefits of each of those strategies might be. Um, Hyperventilation is pretty standard as a mechanism to to relax the brain. Remember, for your own thinking, although your surgeons aren't likely to go down this path, that you are titrating your hyperventilation not to the end tidal CO2, but to the PaCO2, and typically the PaCO2 is somewhat lower. And do you Um, have a goal in mind of a PaCO2? In general, a PaCO2 over 25, between 25 and 30 is probably the appropriate goal. Um, There's a long history of literature, and all textbooks seem to concur that below 25, you don't see any particularly profound effect, um, and you are just disturbing the pH of the patient for no reason. And then when we think about it, and I see this come up on board exams as well, hyperventilation is a temporary intervention, right? How long does it last to decrease ICP? That's a fascinating question, which I don't think there's a clear answer to. And I think the reason is because it must vary substantially from person to person. I think the experience with hyperventilation typically is that it lasts long enough for most neurosurgeries. It would be a pretty exceptional case that goes so long um, that the effect of it starts to wear off. 
Um, but it is also notable that the way these things are designed. So hyperventilation and mannitol probably have the most profound effects early in the case. And then the decadron, the steroids that you give early in the case, have no effect, presumably, in the first few hours. But then their effects start to kick in in mm-hmm. the third, fourth, and fifth hour. And perhaps that's, perhaps to some extent, any decrement in those temporary measures is made up for. Um, remember that different from removing an intracranial tumor, um, no, no extra space is created in the brain as the surgery is ongoing. And so the dynamic can be a little bit different. Um, but just to remind you again, keeping in close communication with your surgeons about this is critical because you can continue to intervene uh, on the degree of brain relaxation. And very often our surgical colleagues will get so lost in their work that they forget that you can help them out uh, if they need it. All right, great. Are there other medications we want to keep in mind that we might use? The other one we should mention are anti-epileptics. So there are a wide variety of risk factors for post-operative seizures. And um, of course, intracranial surgery is one of them. And um, bloody intracranial surgery in particular seems to be highly associated with post-operative seizures. Post-operative seizures are very, very problematic. They confuse the picture. It's unclear whether there was a neurologic injury from surgery or whether it's a seizure. And it's very hard to make that diagnosis post-operatively. So the more of these we can avoid, the better. Um, Different centers have different practices. And generally speaking, the neuroanesthesiologist is guided by the surgeon's practice. They tend to know their own patients best in terms of what medications work for them. Um, almost all of these patients will get doses of Keppra, um, and at some centers, phosphenatone is used in addition to Keppra, uh, or in some rare cases, instead of Keppra. And as with any medication, you need to be mindful of the risks associated. Um, almost all anti-epileptics are associated with hypotension. Keppra is much more benign, but if you run it too fast, you will definitely see hypotension. Phosphenatone is, on the scale of things, a more dangerous medication. Uh, if you give it too fast, uh, and often perhaps even if you give it in conjunction with Keppra, uh, you may see cardiac arrest, which is, of course, the last thing you want to see in this setting. Um, so be mindful that you give your antiepileptics separately, and particularly with the phosphenatoin, I would argue that it either needs to be in a buretrol or in a pump to prevent inadvertent, overly rapid uh, institution of the medication. If for some reason you have an arrest due to phosphenatoin, Remember that epinephrine is the appropriate approach along with probably chest compressions. You're not going to get anywhere giving phenylephrine to a patient who is severely hypotensive because of a low ejection fraction. It's not a vasodilator. It's an anti-inotropic drug. And the mechanism of a phosphenitone-induced arrest is the cardiac depression. Is the sodium channel blockade. Um, Great. All right. Other medications, or have we covered the important ones? I think we've covered the important ones. Great. So let's, let me ask you, there are both temporary and permanent uh, aneurysm clippings. What's the difference, and why would we do one or the other? So the best scenario for you, because you get to go home sooner, is a uh, direct move to permanent clipping. So if the surgeon is able to fully visualize the aneurysm and is confident that he or she can get a clip around the neck of the aneurysm um, without rupturing, then they'll typically go ahead and do so. And the extent to which surgeons are willing to attempt this varies a great deal by their own practice, their level of experience, et cetera. Um, Direct clipping has a higher risk of rupture, and ruptured aneurysms are associated with much poorer post-operative outcomes on average. Um, The alternative is a procedure called temporary clipping, in which the surgeon prevents filling of the aneurysm by placing what's called a temporary clip upstream of the blood supply to the aneurysm. The disadvantage of this approach is that the surgeon is effectively creating a stroke. Um, It's not just the aneurysm that isn't filling, but it's other uh, cerebral tissue that is downstream from the aneurysm. And so um, it's very important that you communicate with your surgeons what their plan is um, and to be mindful that their plans change and they may not think to tell you. Again, this is a very engrossing surgery. This is one of the most difficult forms of surgery that there is. Mm -hmm. Um, And you need to be aware of what's going on in the surgical field. Just a little tip, almost all temporary clips are gold in color and almost all permanent clips are silver in color. So sometimes you can figure out what's going on just by being able to distinguish the colors of the clips. 
Um, but again, it's important to have a good working relationship with the surgeon to keep the line of communication open. Sounds essential. Um, and I would imagine this is, you know, hopefully goes without saying, but these are not the kind of cases where, you know, you're going to be um, studying your um, Mocha Minute questions uh, over <laughs> by the computer, right? This is definitely not. This is a highly watching. engaged case. This yeah. is not the time to, you know, make your plane reservations or do anything else. And I think you need to be very mindful um, when you're taking breaks from these cases that uh, whoever is replacing you is somebody that is fully cognizant of what's going on and someone who is fully capable of managing the patient. Um, a rupture could happen any time. You know, these are ideally done by a two-person team, um, and it's ideal if one person on the team gives the other person a break. Yeah. All right. So you mentioned rupture. Let's talk about that. What uh, happens if it ruptures? So in the event of an inadvertent rupture intraoperatively, um, there are really two flavors. One is the flavor in which our surgical colleagues rapidly gain control of the bleeding by placing a temporary clip upstream of the aneurysm. Um, sometimes this is, has to be done in a manner that's not entirely ideal, um, then that's creating a broader area of uh, reduced perfusion, uh, but stopping the bleeding for them is critical because if they're unable to stop the bleeding, they can't see. It's a very small field. They're working on it via microscope, um, and being able to see what they're doing is critical for making any further progress. In the event of a rupture, the first thing I want to know from the surgeons is, do you have control of it? Can you get control of it? Um, if the answer to that is no, then we need to start thinking about things that we can do to help. And the maneuvers to do that are fairly extreme, uh, to say the least. Um, in the bad old days, uh, people would attempt profound deliberate hypotension as a mechanism to uh, reduce bleeding in the field. All the literature has turned against that practice as harmful in the sense that it causes global cerebral ischemia and not highly efficacious in terms of actually improving the field of view for the surgeon. Um, other options that are on the table are pharmacologic intervention with adenosine. Um, adenosine, uh, if you've ever used it, say, as a medical intern to interrupt an SVT, it causes a brief cardiac arrest, which typically is spontaneously uh, restored to a normal rhythm. Um, dosing for adenosine uh, for these cases, typically people give uh, six milligrams at a time, um, and a dose of 12 is typically sufficient. You should um, put in an IV that works well and get it circulating with a, with a quick flush. Um, and as you're doing that, you should probably be calling for pacer pads to be brought in the room in case for some reason a normal rhythm is not actually restored spontaneously. And so the idea here is that you're stopping the heart temporarily so there's no cardiac output, so the surgeon has a... They have a window of 20 seconds maybe window. 30 seconds to yeah. a minute. You can redose. Um, there's an argument that you can give up to 36 milligrams of adenosine total. I've certainly never given that much. Mm. Um, and what you might do under certain circumstances is wait a little while for perfusion to be restored and an adequate rhythm to be restored and then institute an adenosine um, cardiac arrest a second time to give them more time to work. In other words, it doesn't have to be one long continuous spell. Yeah. Now, obviously, adenosine works best to, uh, or more. It's more likely to work through a central line than a peripheral line. Do, you, do these patients all get central lines or, or not? Uh, almost invariably, we do these cases with only peripheral lines. Okay. Um, there is a long literature on the use of central lines in these settings, and there are some centers that obligatorily do um, central lines for everyone with a ruptured aneurysm um, where these types of problems are much more common. In an unruptured aneurysm, it's fairly unlikely that you'll see this. And the risks of placing a central line include all the standard ones. Um, and we know that central lines aren't great for people. We avoid them when we can. But they also have, um, they have a problem with where you put them in these patients. If you put them in the IJ, where we typically prefer to do so, we may inhibit venous drainage to yeah. some extent. Um, if we put them, uh, if you do a chest line, you run the risk of pneumothorax, which is really not what you want to see in a case like this where you have little access to the patient. And, of course, groin lines, as we all know, are much more subject to infection. So best avoid it if you can. That having been said, it's great to have IVs that you're 100% confident of and, you know, having one that uh, is in a big vein that 
you know, say in the AC or something like that may have some benefit. Okay. So adenosine is one option. Are there other things you can think of in the setting of a rupture? So the other thing that you can do um, is bilateral occlusion of the carotid arteries, which looks unfortunately like you're strangling the patient. Um, That's essentially kind of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So you feel the pulses on both sides and you squeeze as hard as you can. Um, It's unclear with this maneuver exactly what the success rate is. And anecdotally, people report different success rates with it. Most of us haven't done it hundreds of times, so it's very hard to assess your own performance. Um, But there is some argument that it might work. Um, And of course, as in any case like this, as you're approaching the head and neck of a neurosurgical patient, please do be mindful to let the surgeons know what you're doing so you don't bump somebody's elbow at the wrong moment. Yeah. Um, beyond that, there's not a whole lot. Um, it is possible to do circ arrests combined with profound hypothermia, um, but that's typically done in a planned setting for a giant aneurysm. It's very hard to consider instituting that rapidly enough to make a difference in this type of setting. Great. All right. What kind of assessment do the surgeons do uh, intraoperatively that we need to be aware of? So once the clip is on, um, there are two possible uh, problems that may be encountered by the surgeons. One is that the clip itself is obstructing some other circulation. So in other words, it's not just clipping the aneurysm, but maybe it's impinging on the vessel or maybe there's a feeder off of the aneurysm that was unappreciated. And so the clip could be causing a stroke downstream uh, of its circulation rather than just occluding the aneurysm. That's one possible problem. The other possible problem is that the clip is not, in fact, completely obstructing flow into the aneurysm and that there's still filling of the aneurysm, which you know, is a failure to accomplish the goals of the surgery. So um, in the bad old days, we would close up and hope for the best. Um, The next iteration of this was that the patients would close up and then they would do a a post-operative angiogram, typically a day or two after surgery to assess filling. Um, Then somebody had the bright idea that we could do this intraoperatively. um, And I'm proud to say that some of the folks at Johns Hopkins were some of the pioneers Mm. in in this approach to things. Um, So in many centers, this involved actually covering the incision and transporting the patient um, from the operating room to the interventional suite. Uh, I myself had the pleasure of doing that as a resident. Um, And I am much more fond of the emerging practice, which has become standard, I think, at at most centers that see a high volume of aneurysms, which is to do intraoperative angiography. So in this approach, the surgeons or the interventionalists have already established access, uh, and they will bring in their fluoroscopy and go ahead and do an angiogram uh, with a portable machine actually in the operating room. Mm -hmm. Angiography is the gold standard for these things because it gives you the most perfect view achievable of whether the aneurysm is filling and also whether the circulation is still appropriate. Um, There's a newly emerging technology which has garnered some interest, um, which is angiography not using um, an X-ray machine, not using fluoro, uh, but instead using a fluorescent dye that's uh, visible under the correct microscope filters. And so in this case, uh, your surgeon may ask you to inject a dye. It's typically endocyanine green, um, typically 5, I'm sorry, 25 milligrams is typically the dose given. And again, you'd flush it in rapidly, try to get it in circulation as fast as possible. And they can actually watch uh, the vessels fluoresce uh, under the microscope and gain a sense of whether the aneurysm is empty and also gain a sense of whether the, the circulation in the immediate area is impaired. Um, a workflow that's becoming common in our practice is the clips go on, the uh, endocyanine green goes in, the surgeon takes a look, um, tries to satisfy himself or herself that things look pretty good, and then the angiography follows that. Uh, The advantage of using um, the fluorescence angiography is very quick feedback, Mm -hmm. um, so that if, in fact, something is still obstructed, um, the surgeon can go back in. Great. And I've seen that. It's very very cool looking, uh, in fact, to see that fluorescence happen. Um, All right. So, you mentioned way back when we talked about preoperative concerns that you really want to be anticipating the need for a very uh, relatively rapid, smooth, and, and aware, uh, uh, an emergency that gives you a quick awareness and a quick ability to uh, examine your neuro status. So how do you, when you are now thinking it's time to emerge, what are you, how are you making that happen? 
So I think the key is following along with the surgery and having a sense of the pace of the surgery. Usually the closures for these surgeries are not short. Usually they're fairly large incisions. Um, and as such, you know, you can anticipate a closure time seldom less than half an hour, sometimes more than an hour. Again, it's very important to know your surgeons and to watch who's stitching in the field. Yeah. If, you know, the junior residents are doing by themselves, it might take a little longer. If the attending surgeon is in there with, you know, a fellow and a chief resident, it might take a very short amount of time. And whatever anesthetic technique it is that you're using, it's important to turn it off early. I think... In my practice, what I prefer to do is to get rid of the volatile anesthetic very early on, typically as soon as the door is closed, and to ride out the rest of the case on nitrous oxide and remifentanil. Um, remifentanil has the advantage that it's you know the fastest-acting opiate we have, um, and it's also the fastest opiate to go away. Um, the nitrous oxide gives me a mechanism to keep the patient unconscious, which also wears off very quickly and in a very predictable time course, uh, regardless of how long it's been running. Um, again, there are many, many different ways to, to approach this. Mm -hmm. In the era of Sugambidex, this has all gotten a lot simpler for us. Um, previously, when uh, neostigmine was really the only reversal of choice, um, you had to think very carefully about getting your twitches to the point where the patient would be rapidly reversible and not to a state of just adequate strength, but the best strength possible you can give them um, in order to further neuro the neurologic exam. Um, and in the era of Sugamidex, we may do better to keep the patient, you know, more, more deeply paralyzed as they remain in pins, and then we can be assured of a very rapid reversal to full strength as soon as the pins come off. That makes a lot of sense. And so you're keeping the, these patients, obviously, well relaxed during the surgery. The last thing you want here is a sudden movement. And then uh, because of, as you say, Sugamidex, you really can wait until the pins are, are removed from the head and then give the dose necessary to get them fully reversed. Absolutely. And so my typical practice is I will, I will wait to the point where the surgeons are starting to wrap the head and then at that point, I'll turn off my nitrous oxide because at that point, if the patient starts to become conscious, great. Um, I'm in no way worried about recollection in the immediate aftermath. None of these patients remember anything in the short term, sometimes for hours, sometimes even for days. Mm. Um, so I get rid of the nitrous oxide pretty quickly. And as I see them starting to address the, the pins, I'll go ahead and turn off my remifentanil infusion. Uh, which should take five to seven minutes to wear off. And that gives a little time for uh, the pins to be taken off and the head to be returned to me if that's what I'm doing. Yep. Um, and then at that point, I'll go ahead and give my reversal. There's no particular advantage to giving it early with a medication that acts as fast as Sugambidex. And you don't want the patient bucking and coughing while the head is manipulated as the surgeon's putting the dressing on. Yep. That sounds great to me. Anything else to keep in mind for emergence? So I think when you're emerging... As in any case, you should be mindful of what are the factors that would prevent emergence. And you should be clear-eyed and honest with yourself about, gosh, is it possible that I gave too much fentanyl? Um, was this a case in which the temporary clipping went on forever and I gave a ton of propofol? Um, are there, you know, if I'm choosing to use neostigmine, um, and there are many, many reasons why perhaps that's the better approach, you know, am I confident that, in fact, I got full reversal or not necessarily full reversal in terms of any dose, but the full effects of the reversal that I need. Um, and I should be beginning my neurologic exam as soon as I get the head. I want to see what the eyes look like. I want to see, does the patient withdraw from a pinch? Um, I want to see if they respond to voice. Um, I want to see if they'll go ahead and breathe on their own, at least telling me that the brain stem is intact. All right. And you said that uh, you may want to use neostigmine. There may be some advantages. Tell me more about that. Uh, more just in the sense that Sugamidex, you know, has any number of contraindications that people might be concerned about. So if, if neostigmine is your choice because Sugamidex is not the best choice, um, then you should be mindful of How the long? need to dose it appropriately. Yeah. And that it takes longer. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Um, well, great. Anything we, we didn't cover you think we should? So we actually uh, skipped past the maintenance phase. Ah. Um, and the maintenance for these cases is quite variable. Um, as we discussed earlier, um, there are many arguments for why Tiva is probably not um, mm -hmm. the best choice for these cases. Um, 
there are folks who argue for using desflurane because it is relatively quick to get off, although, you know, there are folks who will argue, well, there's a higher tendency towards coughing and bucking at the end of the case, which we try to avoid in neuroanesthetic cases. Um, there are folks who use sevoflurane. Um, it probably doesn't matter. Um, the use of nitrous oxide is something that you'll see a certain amount of debate about in the literature. And there's sometimes an argument that nitrous oxide could cause pneumocephalus. There's sometimes an argument that it causes a higher cerebral metabolic rate. There's sometimes an argument that it causes uh, vasodilation. Um, and I'll lead you to I'll leave you to read the literature on your own and try to figure this out. Um, my best understanding of the literature is that the nitrous oxide in conjunction with a modest dose of volatile anesthetics, and here I'm thinking of the classic uh, paper from uh, Iowa from uh, the British Journal of Anesthesia in 1990, I think, um, there's no increase in cerebral metabolic rate and a modest vasodilatory uh, uh, result from the nitrous oxide, which I think is very acceptable in the setting of my having many other features to control brain relaxation. Um, other things about maintenance, we mentioned the need for um, paralysis. All of these patients should be profoundly paralyzed. Um, there's never any excuse for the patient in any way moving, bucking, or coughing uh, in this type of case, and such a thing could, in fact, be lethal. Um, typically, SSCP monitoring is done, and that's another means by which the surgeons assess how their work went. and you do no harm to the SSCPs with your paralysis. In fact, you make them better by mm -hmm. reducing spontaneous activity in the muscle that confuses the signal. Sounds great. So definitely deeply par deeply relaxed, um, thinking about uh, your, as you said, you probably could use Tiva, but uh, you don't, and some combination of nitrous with another volatile anesthetic um, along with. Now, do you use the remifentanil for the entire case or only at the end? I typically find it's not usually necessary during the maintenance phase of the case, and I'm turning it on sort of towards the end of the case, which okay. I view as a cost-saving. Um, there are a set of patients whose blood pressures tend higher than I want, in which case I may choose to use that rather than using other agents, um, or I may not. Um, I think it's probably, I think of it largely as an emergence drug, I guess, but I could see a use of it intraoperatively. Great. Anything else to add before we sign off? Um, one thing I also realized we missed was in the temporary clipping section, we, I neglected to mention what we should be doing during temporary clipping. Mm. So temporary clipping is a stroke by any other name, whether it was arrived at in a planned fashion or whether it was arrived at because of an inadvertent rupture. Um, so this is a situation in which you want to provide neuroprotection, and you have some great tools at your disposal to do that. Um, fairly standard practice involves the use of either uh, propofol or originally barbiturates to induce burst suppression. What's the value of burst suppression? Reduce cerebral metabolic rate. Um, it may do something for things that are directly in the path of the ischemia, and it certainly may do something for the penumbra around the ischemic area. Um, raising the blood pressure while a temporary clip is on is critical. Mm. So you want to encourage collateral, collateral flow uh, to the area around the stroke as it's, uh, as it's evolving. And, you know, what your blood pressure goals are should be discussed with the surgeon and should be taken in the context of the patient. Um, but typically folks will look at a map above 90, maybe a map of 100 for the average case. Um, there's all sorts of learned scholarly debate about the use of hypothermia uh, in these cases. And the IHAS trial, which largely guides our current thinking, compared mild hypothermia to no hypothermia. So mild hypothermia, 32 to 34 degrees, which sadly we often get incidentally. Um, and it found no value, but also no harm to doing so. Mm. Some centers continue to use that. There may be a role for deep hypothermia in the case of uh, a rupture and a very long uh, run of temporary clipping. Mm -hmm. But again, this is largely unproven. Um, every study, including those in my laboratory, suggests that hypothermia is cerebrally protective. However, the unintended consequences of hypothermia, including rewarming, do have their risks, and no one has been able to really settle this issue. Okay. Interesting. So you, during a temporary clip placement, you want to think about increasing blood pressure, maybe with some phenylephrine, 
a lot of folks will use a phenylephrine infusion or mm-hmm. just phenylephrine pushes or some combination of both. Great. And then uh, additionally, some propofol to get burst suppression, um, maybe, t- maybe a little temperature management depending on, on your protocol. Um, great. I think that's everything I can think of. Dave, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure as always. All right. Thanks so much, Dr. Mintz. That was fantastic. Really, really good stuff. I think this would be really useful if you're going to be doing one of these cases to help you review. Let us know what you thought, though. Go to the website, acrac.com. Leave a comment. We can all learn from what you have to say. If you're a fan of the show and you haven't already, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. Even if you already have, you haven't done it in a little while, you can still go leave another comment. Still helps, still counts. And if you're interested in supporting the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference. You can also go to paypal.me slash ACRAC where you can leave a donation as well. Thank you so much to everyone who's already done so or become a patron. Thank you to Brian Park for the outlines you're making for some of the shows. They're really useful, especially if you're using these to study. All right. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. David Mintz, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.